Well, what a nice appropriate gospel for our first public mass in about, what, two months or something like that? <laughs> so uh, let's, let's hope we forget all of the anguish, right, and, and have uh, our, an appreciation of the joy that we feel for being able to gather again together. It's so good to see all of you. All of my socially, properly socially distanced congregants. Um, and, uh, it's been, been wonderful. I've, I've been always thinking of you, of course, and holding you in my heart as I offer Mass every day, but it's, it's nice to actually, you know, celebrate Mass with you in a bodily <laughs> manner here. Um, also too, our first reading, I think, is really kind of appropriate to what we're, kind of what we've been going through. And it's been an opportunity for me over the past few weeks and months really to reflect upon the relationship between the church and the state. And uh, we see Gallio, the proconsul, and uh, this is the Roman Empire we're talking about. And to this day, really, in so many ways, we are sons and daughters of the Roman Empire. Okay, our legal system especially is derived, it's evolved from Roman law. And we see Rome playing an incredibly important role in God's providential plan for the world. An amazing, I mean really just like a central role. Rome is so important. And it's a, it's a double-edged sword. It plays a double-edged sword in the history of the church. It's both good and bad. It cuts both ways. We see Rome and all of its, especially its emphasis upon law, portrayed very positively in certain books of the Bible, specifically the book of Acts, which is what we're hearing from. The Romans are portrayed in the book of Acts as reasonable, down-to-earth people who actually protect the apostles from danger and persecution and unjust uh, oppression at the hands of Jews or at the hands of locals or what have you. Okay, so Rome is actually portrayed in a positive way. And as I've spoken about in a few homilies back a few months ago, Rome was a providential instrument for the propagation of the gospel because what the Roman Empire did is it imposed law upon a large swath of territory of the world. Okay, and it built roads, and it brought warring tribes, it, it, it reined them in. Okay, and it, uh, you know, there was writing, there was actually a mail system. Okay, and uh, all of those things were necessary for the gospel. All right, can you imagine if the whole world was broken up into tens of thousands of little tribes, all speaking different languages and all trying to kill each other? Right. How would the gospel be able to be preached in that in a world like that? It's impossible. There's no way that the that the great commission that the apostles received from our Lord to preach the gospel into all nations that would have been able to be fulfilled. Impossible. Okay. So what's called, but historians call the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, was absolutely necessary precondition for the gospel. And so Rome is a very, very important and positive thing. And in Thessalonians, Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians, he talks about the coming of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is this kind of figure that comes, a political figure who comes right before the second coming of Christ. And he oppresses the church in a way that's, you know, it's never been oppressed before. And uh, Paul talks about, we know what is keeping him back. 
the Antichrist. We know what's restraining him from his appearance. And the ancient Catholic theologians say that what Paul's talking about there is the Roman Empire and Roman law. Okay? And... uh, now, there's a kind of a, there's a sort of a two-edged sword though, because Rome then, as it's embodied in its emperor, can sometimes become very bad. And so then we go to the Apocalypse, the last book of the New Testament. And Rome there is portrayed as a harlot, okay, who's riding a scarlet beast and all of this kind of stuff. Not, not good. All right, and she's responsible for the blood of the martyrs, and we know that the the Roman authorities did eventually persecute themselves. They persecuted the apostles and the early evangelists and the Christians and martyred them. Okay, the most infamous Roman uh, is Nero. Okay, in the sixties, and he it was under his uh, jurisdiction and command that Saints Peter and Paul were killed. Okay, and then you have Domitian in the, in the late first century, and then the Decian and Diocletian, and all of these emperors who then brought the arm of the state against the church. Okay, now in a lot of ways, though, they did that contrary to the deeper spirit and genius of Roman law. They put themselves out as dictators. Okay, and that's why in the Apocalypse it talks about how the beast turns and devours the harlot and burns her with fire. And that's a reference probably to Nero, who actually burned Rome. He intentionally took a section of Rome and burnt it so that he could level it, so that he could build some palace of his or something that he wanted to do. Okay, So we see the Roman emperor then turning upon the senators and the democratic and republican and constitutional processes that are inherent in the Roman government, and he plays the tyrants. All right, and so then he becomes a precursor of the Antichrist. So you see Rome is a two-edged sword. And uh, really, starting, I would say, in the Middle Ages, you've got um, Joachim of Fiori, who was a theologian from the 1100s, and his theology was taken by this really radical kind of crazy wing of the Franciscans. The Franciscans are very good, but there was one breakaway group of the Franciscans that started to really turn against the church, and they built up their kind of ideology on the basis of Joachim of Fiori. You got another guy, Marsilius of Padua, very important figure. And he was in league with the Holy Roman Emperor. See, the Holy Roman Emperor sometimes could be a positive defender and promoter of the church, but then sometimes could turn it into an enemy of the church and oppose the progress of the church. You know, Constantine, going back now a little bit earlier in the fourth century, Constantine, for all his faults, had a very, very deep respect for the church and a very appropriate way of relating to it. When the Council of Nicaea was called, he comes in and he refuses to sit before the bishops sit. Okay? And he's not there dominating things and calling the shots. Okay? All right? So Constantine always had a very respectful distance. He knew the proper boundaries of church and state. Okay? His sons, not so good. Okay, so his sons, Constantius, and, the, and he had two two other sons. They kind of turned and started to persecute the the church. Okay, and then it would kind of go back and forth, back and forth as history goes on. You got the Holy Roman Emperor in the in the twelve hundreds, in the early thirteen hundreds, who's in league with Marcellus of Padua, and they're against the Pope. And you got all of this conflict. It's this constant conflict between the Pope and the bishops on the one hand, and the and the powers that be, the secular powers. And then in the 16th century, 
You've got Protestantism, which talk, took all of Marsilius of Padua's ideology and kind of concocted this totally anti-Christian understanding of the relationship between the church and the state, such that now Europe is being broken up into all these different nations, and all these different nations are ruled by kings, and the kings are saying, hey, guess what? I'm the head of religion in my territory, okay? The Pope can go and take a flying leap, all right? So the Protestantism started by saying, I, the king, I'm the chief layperson in the church. And because there's no such thing as the difference between clergy and laity, hey, I'm the boss. I get to decide what religion is going to look like in my territory. Then that eventually evolves into the secular state where the king doesn't even care about religion and in fact starts to say stuff like, ah, that's just like, you know, for your private little sewing circle that you want to do in your, in your corner on your own time. But don't, don't bring it into the public sphere. Okay? I'm the boss here. You church people, get out of here. This is my space. I'm the boss. I'm the king. I say what goes. Alright? Which is sometimes what we're seeing today. Right? So this whole idea of the balance between church and state, we're looking at it today. Alright? I don't think there's a single bishop in America right now who would not want public masses to be offered. Okay? I think, you know, you go back to the beginning of the pandemic and the bishops were probably like, oh, we don't know. I mean, this could be bad, right? So let's cooperate as together, you know, not be adversarial, unnecessarily adversarial. There's no need to do that. So let's cooperate with the public authorities and the health officials. They're not idiots, all right? They kind of know what they're talking about, so let's cooperate. But, you know, time goes on. And I'm sorry, at some point the bishops say, hey, the administration of the sacraments is our responsibility. Christ has entrusted that to us, not to you, Governor Cuomo. All right? You have not been given that mission from Christ to administer the sacraments. That's our job. And now at this point, it's like an encroachment of church versus state. We thank God that the laws have been relaxed and so we can gather. There's a limit of 10 people. We don't know how exactly that's going to look, you know. And we're going to have to kind of feel that out over the next few weeks. We're going to have a meeting with our staff this Tuesday. And we're going to uh, just kind of figure out how what the best thing to do is. You know, we got to get direction from, from Bishop Matano and from the diocese. So at this time, at this point, there's a lot of unknowns. Uh, but we'll we'll figure it out, and we'll get things back up and running. Uh, my hat is off to Bishop Hebda, and uh, he's the Archbishop of uh, Minneapolis. Okay, and he and all the bishops of Minnesota have signed a letter that ba- and sent it to their governor, saying, "Guess what? Your law about ten people, we're not going to obey it." Okay, <laughs> so God bless them. Now, of course, you still have to, you know, use some common sense and. We'll be, you know, mindful of trying to slow the spread of the virus. Um, but we can make some judgment calls on our own, all right, about how the sacraments are going to be administered because that's been entrusted to, to the bishops and not to the state authorities. Now, I'll just end with this one thought. I know I'm going on a long time here, but this is like a big history lesson, I know. Um, a lot of the heresies that started in the first half of the church's life in the first century really came out of the blue and uh, were not provoked by the clergy. The popes 
uh, for the first like 18 popes of the church were like all martyrs. Holy, holy guys, saints. Okay? Uh, in the Middle Ages, not so much. Okay? Some things started to go bad. And the clergy themselves were not good. Okay? And had their own sins and their own greed and their own power-hungry tendencies and whatnot. And it was really in response to the sins of the clergy that the heresies of the second millennium would come about, such as Marsilius of Padua, Protestant Reformation itself, Luther. I mean, they were looking at real abuses of the clergy of that time. Okay, So a lot of the problems that the church finds itself in is it's a result of the sins of its own clergy, historically. So it's a time also for, you know, not just rallying at the, at the secular powers that be, but it's a moment for self-examination as well and saying, you know, we bring a lot of troubles on ourselves. And so in humility, let's embrace a spirit, and I'm talking about the clergy here, let's embrace a spirit of true repentance and poverty and simplicity of life and holiness, and we trust that God is our defender and he's going to work out all of these delicate church-state relationship issues that we're going through and experiencing right now so keenly. Always remembering finally that Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father and that he is the King of kings and that he is in control and in charge.